Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on His side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to... We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. As President of the United States, I will always put America first. Just like you, as the leaders of your countries, will always and should always put your countries first. As long as I hold this office, I will defend America's interests above all else. In America, we do not seek to impose our way of life on anyone, but rather to let it shine as an example for everyone to watch. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. We will stop radical Islamic terrorism because we cannot allow it to tear up our nation and indeed to tear up the entire world. We cannot let a murderous regime continue these destabilizing activities while building dangerous missiles, and we cannot abide by an agreement if it provides cover for the eventual construction of a nuclear program. We seek an approach to refugee resettlement that is designed to help these horribly treated people and which enables their eventual return to their home countries to be part of the rebuilding process. For the cost of resettling one refugee in the United States, we can assist more than 10 in their home region. Out of the goodness of our hearts, we offer financial assistance to hosting countries in the region and we support recent agreements of the G20 nations that will seek to host refugees as close to their home countries as possible. All right, so those are some highlights from President Trump's speech at the UN earlier this week, which, depending on which news network you watch, is either being decried as, as violent and dangerous or the most amazing speech Ever. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But first, let me tell you that you're listening to 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. You can join us for services Sunday morning at 9.30 or 11.15. Our address is 6501 West Lake Mead Boulevard. I am Crystal Heath, and this is The Frittle Show. All right. So uh, the president's speech at the U.N. was roughly 41 minutes in total. 
Uh, some of the highlights you heard, but I'll run them down for you again here real quickly. Uh, essentially, he went with an always America first message. He said, I'm going to put my country first. And oh, by the way, you other leaders in your countries, you should be putting your country first as well. Okay, that, that sounds good. Point one. Check for Trump. Good job. He said he will totally destroy, or we, being the United States, will totally destroy North Korea if necessary, and that Rocket Boy is on a suicide mission. Here to forward, I believe that Kim Jong-un shall only and ever be referred to as Rocket Boy. Um, I really didn't see anything wrong with that statement either. It's his job to protect the United States. It's his job to defend our allies. And he's saying, look, if you're going to mess with us, you're going to pay the pay the price. All right. Point number two. Check another one off for Trump. He said we're going to stop Islamic terrorism. He said it cannot be allowed to tear up the United States or the world. All right. So what exactly do we disagree with there? Anything? Is anybody opposed to stopping Islamic terrorism? No? Okay, great. Point three, check another one off for Trump. He said that we want to help refugees, that we are providing a lot of money to help refugees. And oh, by the way, we can either help one refugee in the United States or we can help 10 in the region where we, where they, uh, from which they come if we help relocate them in that general region. So we're choosing to help 10 instead of one. That seems pretty logical. In fact, it sounds like a great idea. Point four. Check another one off for the president. He specifically mentioned Venezuela, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But overall, this was a speech that was really quite good. If you love America, if you love the ideas, and I don't mean the fruited plains and the beauty and and football and Thanksgiving That's not what I mean, although I do love those things. I mean, if you love the idea, because really America is an idea. If you love the idea of freedom, of liberty and justice for all people, this was a liberty and justice speech. That's what it was. And yet you have Hillary Clinton, whose book sales are not going fantastic, saying the speak was dark and dangerous, and the left is freaking out. Meanwhile, Bibi Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, who gives, in my opinion, the best UN speeches in history of the world, uh, he tweeted out that in over 30 years, in my experience with the UN, I never heard a bolder or more courageous speech. That's from Netanyahu. Netanyahu, those are pretty, pretty strong words. He began his own address by saying, I've been ambassador to the United Nations, and I'm a long-serving Israeli prime minister, so I've listened to countless speeches in this hall. But I can say this, none were bolder, none were more courageous and forthright than the one delivered by President Trump today. From our strongest ally, those are encouraging words, and they should encourage you. It is really great. I, I don't know if you've listened to past speeches at the UN by past presidents, uh, one or two of whom in particular come to mind at the moment, but we haven't always portrayed strength on the world stage. And it may sound cliche, but peace through strength is a real thing. 
I mean, what exactly is dark and dangerous about recognizing and calling out the dangers of the world? Is it better if we just pretend they don't exist? Is it better that we just pretend that all the world is living in peace and harmony and happiness when it's really not? I mean, is it dark and dangerous to say that if our allies are in danger, we're going to do something about it? Is that what? I don't understand what's wrong with that. Is it dark and dangerous to call Kim Jong-un rocket boy? But, I mean, if the nickname fits, I, and I think it's different. You know, Trump, the president has a knack for, for putting together nicknames for people that he doesn't really like. And uh, they're not always, they're not always appropriate. And I think he could have left it out. But is it dark and dangerous? No, I don't think it really is. Because Kim Jong-un acts like a petulant child on the world stage. He does. Is it dark and dangerous to explain that not only do we want to help refugees, but that the best way to help them is by resettling them in their own regions because that will allow us to help ten times more people than we could otherwise? No, of course not. That's just smart. So you know what was dark and dangerous about this speech? The fact that it threatens complacency. The fact that it erases all lines in the sand and simply says, no. Oftentimes, the the liberal and leftist manner of governance and interacting with, shall we say, misbehaving countries is to be like that parent that will count to three, right? They tell Johnny or Susie to do something. They're like, all right, I'm going to count to three. I'm going to count to three. I'm going to count to three. And then they finally start counting, and then when they get to two, because they don't really want to have to follow through, they just really want the kid to do something, but they don't want to have to deal with it. And so two becomes two and a quarter, two and a half, two and three quarter. Look, if the kid knows that they don't have to listen to you until you get to three, then they're not going to budge until you get to three. You could put in as many quarter and half numbers as you want. It won't matter. But leftist governance often takes it even a step further than that. We say, okay, you bad little dictator, I counted to three once already and you didn't listen, but we're going to give you another chance, all right? So I'm going to count to three again. Now, and this time, I really mean it, okay, when I count to three this time, then you need to listen. No, that's ridiculous. That's not how you govern. It also, by the way, probably shouldn't be how you parent, but you can go listen to uh, Dr. David Tice has a great parenting series that you can find on our website, experienceliberty.com. But back to Trump and Kim Jong-un. What's dark and dangerous for Hillary and ultra-leftists like her is that President Trump isn't counting to three twice. He isn't even counting to three once. No, he's saying these are the rules, and if you break them, there will be consequences. No more lines in the sand. No longer will we hold a sword in vain, if you will. And that's just not the leftist way. The leftist way is appeasement and world peace through words and happiness. Meanwhile, people suffer and die as we pretend everything is wonderful and happy because, you know, we're not having to use force against communist regimes and therefore everything is great, even though, oh yeah, they're continuing gross human rights violations against their people on a massive scale. 
Take Venezuela, for instance. That's a country that President Trump specifically called out in his speech. And he said, I ask every country represented here today to be prepared to do more to address this very real crisis. We call for the full restoration of democracy and political freedoms in Venezuela. The problem in Venezuela is not that socialism has been poorly implemented, but that socialism has been faithfully implemented. This corrupt regime destroyed a prosperous nation by imposing a failed ideology that has produced poverty and misery everywhere it has been tried. Boom. Drop the mic. That is so well said and needs to be said in that body. And world leaders, guess what? They didn't clap. They clapped at the beginning. When Trump called for world support for the people of Venezuela. But then when he went on to explain, look, this is why the people in Venezuela are suffering. World leaders failed to acknowledge the broken system that brought it to its current state. Our president is on the world stage exposing the dangers of communism, exposing the dangers of despot dictatorships. He called out Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, and North Korea by name. Right? Contrast, if you will, his words and actions to that of the pre- previous president who praised Chavez in Venezuela and sought to restore relations with Castro in Cuba. All right, just, just think it through for a minute and then compare and contrast the president's words with Democratic superstar socialist Bernie Sanders. There is a huge difference in worldview here. And President Trump, quite frankly, is right. And look, there are plenty of things that I'm not pleased with the president and Congress about currently. But you know what? This is not one of them. This is a good speech, and this is the president that we need on the world stage. Again, we can get into things that I think should be done differently and could be done so much better here in the United States with the way that this administration is governing. But when it comes to this speech, we have to be able to look at things. This is oh, this is one of my biggest pet peeves is we, we go rah, 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 my guy is always right. Or we go boo, 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 it's your guy, he's always wrong. No, you have to be able to look at things as individual <laughs> activities and judge them on their own merit. And this speech was a good speech. He's right about communism. He's right about Iran. He's right about Cuba. He's right about... North Korea, and he's right about Venezuela. He was right about... I, I didn't hear anything in this speech that I thought was was not something uh, that that should be addressed on the world stage. I thought he portrayed a strong uh, United States image, and I thought he basically put the world on notice. And it's a long time. It's been a long time coming, rather. Take Venezuela, for instance. I I don't have time. Maybe we do. Maybe I can read part of this. But there's an article in the New York Times. And you should write this down because you should read it later. Because I'm not going to have time to read you the whole thing today. But it's called, I am in prison because I want freedom for my country. And you might think that's in some communist country in, in... in Europe somewhere, it's not. This is Venezuela. This is from Caracas, Venezuela. And it begins like this. I, again, I can't read the whole thing because I don't have time, but you should go and read it. I am in prison because I want freedom for my country. I write this from my cell in the dungeons of the Venezuelan secret police. 
I'm 32 and I've been a Democratic activist for 12 years. I have two children, eight and five, who are my sun and moon. I have a wife whom I love and who now has to carry the burden of being married to a political prisoner. One year ago, while I was going to speak at a news conference on behalf of the Popular Will Political Party, of which I am a member, I was intercepted by 10 or 15 undercover secret police vehicles. A couple of dozen armed agents tied my hands and covered my head with a black cloth. They transported me to the prison from which I now write, where I was locked in a cell without light or natural ventilation. When I stretched my arms, I could touch two opposite walls. The door was blocked with black garbage bags, leaving the room in total darkness. There was rotten, worm-infested food on the floor alongside scraps of clothing covered in feces. It felt as if I had been buried alive. I was denied any communication with the outside world and could speak with my lawyers only when I was taken to court. After ten days, I was transferred to administrative office inside the jail, where for the next seven months, I slept on a mat on the floor. I have finally been moved to a cell with a bed, though one with with no windows. I can see the sun for only one hour a week. Scarcely five years ago, I was studying for a master's degree at Columbia University. Back then, I strolled with my family through the Morningside Heights neighborhood in Manhattan and hoped that one day I would use everything I had learned to rebuild my country. But for me, as for so many other Venezuelans, political imprisonment has been the punishment for daring to dream of a democratic society free of communism and open to the global community. We just want what so many other people around the world take for granted. Free elections, good governance, free expression, judicial independence, personal security, and a modicum of economic liberty, something not even the Chinese Communist Party denies its citizens any other anymore. I'm not the only one who thinks this way. The other 1,048 political prisoners and most Venezuelans share my dream. But an armed minority has managed to impose a regime of fear, corruption, and blood. My case is evidence of that. And then he goes on to talk more about his imprisonment and what led to his being there. And he's essentially, he's been determined to be innocent of doing anything wrong. The Venezuelan government has decided that we actually have no reason to hold him in prison. But they're still holding him in prison. Why is he in prison? Because he dared to have an opinion different than what the government told him he should have. And why is this happening? Because of communism. Because of socialism. Because of exactly what President Trump addressed at the UN. And I understand that communism and socialism are different, but I don't have time to get into that today. Uh, If... If you understand the difference and are thinking that in your head, then you understand already. So that's fine. Um, So bottom line, this was really, I think, one of the best speeches, if not possibly the best speech of Trump's presidency, quite frankly. He came across as a strong, passionate leader on the world stage. He stuck to his script. And I really think it was just it was a good speech. Oh, and another thing. Oh, I got to take a break. But another thing it turns out that the president was right about was wiretapping. This has just been, quite frankly, uh, on a. I, I think it's been a good week for the president. I think he's been vindicated on many things. One of them being wiretapping. Turns out his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was being listened to and spied on. Uh, and, and watching the media flip flop and jump through hoops all over the place trying to justify why they once said that Trump was crazy for claiming to be wiretapped and how now oh actually yeah I guess he was that's just been interesting the best article I've read on that by the way and I don't have time to get into it with you here today because there are other things I want to talk about um, but 
It's actually in the New York Post. I, I know. I know. But if you want to read an excellent article on the Trump wiretapping thing, New York Post title is Wiretaps May Prove Trump Right, and that's absolutely terrifying. And it goes into the ramifications of, of what a wiretap... Of a of a uh, the ramifications of wiretapping a presidential candidates uh, and candidates staffers. So it's really good. If you want to know more about the wiretapping, New York Post wiretaps may prove Trump right, and that's absolutely terrifying. Look that one up. It's a good, it's a good read. But now we are going to take a break. When we return, we're going to talk about one man who literally changed the course of history in this country and really for the entire world. You do not want to miss this. Stay with us. All right, so Planned Parenthood and the ACLU are suing the state of Maine over a law that says abortions may only be performed by doctors. Um, I, I, I don't even know what to say about that. Who do, who do you think? Who else do you want? Do you not understand that this is a very dangerous procedure? I mean, in every abortion, at least one person dies. And the danger to the mother is something we don't often talk about, but which is extremely real. And I don't just mean on an emotional level. So who else did you want? Planned Parenthood and AC and the ACLU. Like, if you actually care about women's health, which is what you say you're all about, you know, women's rights. Well, then the women should have a right to have a doctor and not someone else if this is the decision that they choose to make. And I have a lot of things that I would say about that, but I'm... I'm going to move on um, because I, I haven't read the entire article yet. It's just a headline that I just saw, so I don't want to get too far into it without reading it and understanding and knowing all the facts. But, you know, at first glance, it's, it seems pretty outrageous. Um, yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more tomorrow after I have a chance to actually read uh, more about it. But next up is a story I had never heard before. I'm guessing that a lot of you may not have heard it before either, but I found it absolutely fascinating. There's this guy, um, his name was Stanislav Petrov. He died earlier this week at the age of 77. He was a Soviet officer who single-handedly kept the the world from nuclear war. You don't know the story? Let me tell it to you from the New York Times. Early on the morning of September 26, 1983, Stanislav Petrov helped prevent the outbreak of nuclear war. A 44-year-old lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defense Forces, he was a few hours into his shift as the duty officer at Spurkov 15, the secret command center outside Moscow where the Soviet military monitored its early warning satellites over the United States when alarms went off. Computers warned that five Minuteman intercontinental ballistic missiles had been launched from an American base. For 15 seconds, we were in a state of shock, he later recalled. We needed to understand what's next. 
The alarm sounded during one of the tensest periods in the Cold War. Three weeks earlier, the Soviets had shot down a Korean Airlines commercial flight after it crossed into Soviet airspace, killing all 269 people on board, including a congressman from Georgia. President Ronald Reagan had rejected calls for freezing the arms race, declaring the Soviet Union an evil empire. The Soviet leader, Yuri Andropov, was obsessed by fears of an American attack. Colonel Petrov was at a pivotal point in the decision-making chain. His superiors at the warning system headquarters reported to the general staff of the Soviet military, which would consult with Mr. Andropov on launching a retaliatory attack. After five nerve-wracking minutes, electronic maps and screens were flashing as he held a phone in one hand and an intercom in the other, trying to absorb streams of incoming information. Colonel Petrov decided that the launch reports were probably a false alarm. As he later explained, it was a gut decision, at best a 50-50 guess, based on his own distrust of the early warning system and the relative paucity of the missiles that were launched. Colonel Petrov died at 77 uh, in a Moscow suburb where he lived alone on a pension. The death was not widely reported at the time, but was confirmed by his son Dmitry, according to Colonel to Carl Schumacher, a political activist who, after learning in 1998 of Colonel Petrov's Cold War role, traveled to Russia to meet him and remained his friend. The cause of his death was hypostatic pneumonia. Historians who have analyzed the episode say that Colonel Petrov's calm analysis helped avert catastrophe, and probably kept the world out of a nuclear war. All right, so here's what happened. The Soviet officer is standing in front of his command center. All these screens are going crazy, screaming the United States is attacking us, Five intercontinental ballistic missiles are on their way here. We've got to we've got to react. We've got to do something. And the standard operating procedure was if the United that's why they have this system in place. It was if the United States fires at us, we're gonna fire back at them before those missiles even get here so that there's going to be uh damage on both sides, regardless of if we even get destroyed, they'll be already on their way, and no matter what, we're going to take out the United States as well. And this man had it in his power. He was the one that said, we are under attack by the United States, fire the missiles, or that said, this is a false alarm. Looking back on the incident, he said it was 50-50. He held the future of his country. What if he, had, what if he was wrong? If he was wrong, five intercontinental ballistic nuclear missiles were about to destroy countless numbers of the Russian people if he was wrong. If he's right, he keeps the world from nuclear war and saves countless numbers of American lives. And he went with his gut and said, I think that this is a false alarm. And so he didn't make the call. And by that decision... One man literally changed the course of history. One decision. And after he made that decision, he lived in obscurity for most of his life. No one knew what he'd done 
or the war or understood the war that he'd single-handedly stopped. Even today, most of us have no idea who Stanislav Petrov is, and we'll probably forget about him a week from now, at least until they make the movie, that is. <coughs> Excuse me. And we live in a world where everyone wants to be a hero. Everyone wants to be a celebrity. And that's not necessarily wrong. But we live in a country and a society where anything is possible and overnight fame is achievable if your photo or video or blog post just goes viral. And so we keep snapping, we keep Instagramming, we keep YouTubing, hoping for that moment of fleeting fame. We think that if we were just famous, if people cared about our opinions, if people just like our post enough, or if our, if our page could get more likes, if we could just make a little more money, then we could make a real difference in this world. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to utilize social media or to create Facebook pages or internet personas to try and influence people or advance a cause or a product. But I think too often we become so focused on being famous that we forget to be faithful. Right? Petrov wasn't going for fame. He lived in obscurity. But he changed the course of history by one decision. See, for the overwhelming vast majority of us, we will never be famous. Yeah, some of us are going to be on the news. Some of us will make viral videos. Somebody may become the next Tom Brady, and some of us may appear on Jimmy Kimmel or even star in a movie. But here's the question for you. How many movie stars can you name from 1940? A handful? I'm an old movie buff, but off the top of my head, I can probably only name 10 to 20 people. You know how many movie stars there were in 1940? Hundreds. Hundreds of movie stars. Fame is fleeting. How many people can you name that were on uh, The Late Show in 1940? Did they even have a Late Show in 1940? Do you know? I don't know. See, even if you become the most popular person on the planet today, next year there's going to be someone more popular than you. And 10 years from now, you'll be a has-been. 50 years from now, you're a classic. And 100 years from now, you'll be lucky if a handful of people maybe know your name. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to depress you. No, I'm trying to tell you that there is really good news here. Because God never asked us to be famous. Now, there are those that will be called to step into that role, but for the overwhelming majority, and even for those that end up in that role, that's not something that God asked us to do. You won't find it in the Bible anywhere. Thou shaltest beest famous. It's not there. And I find it interesting that the thing that most people in our society and in our world, deep down, the thing that they would most love to accomplish in life is something that God never asked us to do. God never asked us to be famous. God never asked us to go viral. God simply asks us to be faithful. And for some, that may mean being faithful in or in spite of fame. But for most of us, it won't. There's a great old book called uh, Faithful But Not Famous. I might ask for that to be put on my headstone one day, actually, because that sounds just perfect. Because the thing is, the first part of that, the faithful part, that I can control. The famous part, not so much. And even if I have it one day, it'll be gone the next. But I can be faithful every day, no matter what. 
And the amazing thing about faithfulness is it doesn't matter how much skill you have or how many likes you get or how many friends you have or if you're single or married, if you have two kids or 20, if you're a pastor in a church or you drive a semi-truck, it doesn't matter. No matter who you are or what you do, you have just as much capacity as anyone and everyone else to be faithful. It's in the parable of the talents. Jesus told it. You know the story. A wealthy man gives three of his servants talents, not as in playing the piano talent necessarily, but a sum of money, and he goes away. While he's gone, there's a servant who receives five talents, and he uses them to get five more. There's a servant who gets ten talents, and he uses them to get ten more. They utilized what they had. And when the master returns, he says, well done, good and faithful servants. I gave you five, you made more. Good job. Aren't you glad that he didn't come back and say, what, you're you're so lazy? I gave you five. You could have turned that into at least ten. I mean, come on. Or to the one with ten, he could have said, don't you know you had more potential? You started out with ten. You started out with an advantage. You could have done more. Don't you know you could have done more? No. That's not what he said. He said, well done. You were good and faithful. But then there was that third servant who took what he'd been given and he buried it. He did nothing. He did nothing with the gift and responsibility that was given to him. He wasn't faithful and he suffered the consequences of his unfaithfulness. What is it that God has given to you? What is it that's been entrusted to you? What is it that you're responsible for? What is it for which you must be faithful. You know, I was, I was reading a book the other day, and there was this one part that really stuck out to me. It was written by a pastor. I, I don't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but uh, he was in this one part of the book. He said, in essence, that you're responsible for 5% of what you do. And that shocked me. My, my, my radar went off because I was like, uh, no, clearly we are all 100% responsible for 100% of what we do. Obviously, you know, not in judgment for sin because Jesus paid it all. But outside of sin and eternal security, we still have to give an account. But, you know, I, I was intrigued by this. And because I thought, you know, well, you're wrong. So I kept reading. And what he said was so fascinating to me, I'm still digesting it. And I'm going to let you chew on this, all right? Because the author said this. He said, 85% of what you do in a day, anyone else could do. 85% of what you do in a day, anyone could do. You answer emails, drive to work, answer the phone, watch TV, walk the dog, feed the kids. If you look at your day, 85% of what you do, anyone can do. 10% of what you do, another person could do if properly trained. So, for example, for me right now, no one really knows all of the ins and outs of how our radio programming works and how it is set up. But it's, I mean, honestly, it's not that complicated. Given an hour or two of training, maybe more, it's an imperfect example. But pretty much anyone could do what I do. It wouldn't be hard. You, You could figure it out. And the same is most likely true of you. You're a pilot? Oh, we can teach someone else how to do that. Granted, it'll take longer than teaching someone how to run the radio. But, you know, you're a nurse? We can teach someone else how to do that. So when it really boils down, 95% of your day, of your life, someone else could do. Someone else could accomplish these things. But then there's the 5% that's left. And the 5% is the you that only you can do. 
The 5% is the time you spend with God that only you can spend with God. The 5% is the time that you spend with your family that only you can spend with your family. The 5% is a spiritual gift that God has given you, if you know Jesus, that allows you to exhort or to teach or to give or to serve as only you can. And that's, that's the 5%. And that 5% is the most important because that's the talent that has been entrusted to you, if you will. It's the things and the being in life that only you can do and only you can be. And oftentimes we focus on the 85% and we prioritize the 10% when the most important thing is the 5%. Now we have to do the 95% and do it well. But if the 95% is causing you to bury your talent, if it's suffocating the 5%, then it might be time for a change. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing is, was I faithful? No matter what else happens in the 95% of the day, was I faithful with that 5%? Don't bury your talent today. Be faithful. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frugal. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Furrow, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? There's some good in this world, Mr. Furl. And it's worth fighting for. There is some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it is worth fighting for. Why would I play that for you? Well, because today marks 80 years since J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit. The Hobbit is 80 years old today. Now, I know it's not a scene from The Hobbit. The Hobbit's just the prequel, but that's my favorite part. If it's not your favorite part of the Lord of the Rings series, regardless of if you like The Hobbits or or the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if that's not your favorite part of the movies, then I don't know if we can be friends because that is by far the best, bestest part. 
But sadly, we have come to the end of our program for today. Happy birthday to hobbitses everywhere, by the way. Um, Thanks for being with us. You're listening to 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church. Join us on Sunday. Our services are at 9.30 and 11.15. If you can't be here in person, you can stream us online. Just visit our website at experienceliberty.com. Or if you like us on Facebook at Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas, you can watch a live stream of our service there as well. Tomorrow is Friday, which means I'm going to be giving things away. By the way, uh, we had so many people. I was amazed. So yesterday I told you a story about, um, what was it about? Oh, the the, the 1.7 kiloton nuclear bomb that was detonated here in uh, just outside of Las Vegas um, I don't remember how long ago it was now, but I told you about that and I asked for someone to let me know uh, how many elephants it would take to make a 1.7 kiloton bomb and then I would give a prize. So many people responded, I, I have no idea who was first because I I was amazed at how many of you knew and how quickly how many elephants were in 1.7 kilotons? I was seriously impressed. Do I remember the answer off the top of my head? I feel like it was in the range of 850. Um, and I, I, unfortunately, I can't pick a winner because so many of you <laughs> responded and some people were calling, some people were texting, some people were talking to me on the playground, and y- you all are winners. You all are winners. I, I was amazed. But tomorrow... Tomorrow we will have an actual winner because we'll have our Friday giveaway and I will be sure to structure it in such a way that we will know for sure who is the first uh, person to get that correct. All right. So congrats to all of you yesterday. If you said anywhere in the 850 range and there were a lot of you that did, you were correct. I just I don't know who said it first. So I can't uh, I really can't pick a winner because there was just so many responses. And last but not least, let me share with you this. Because we have to end on a on a good happy 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 note. You've heard of Elf on a Shelf, right? Okay. Now picture this. Picture this. Chewbacca. Chewbacca. If you if you don't know what Star Wars is, then you have no idea what I'm talking about. But that's okay. Don't worry. Just it's okay. Chewbacca standing on top of a chocolate chip cookie. Chewbacca standing on top of a chocolate chip cookie. I'm going to give you a second before I explain to you that while you've heard on an elf of Elf on a Shelf, now get ready for Wookie on a Cookie. You're welcome. I know that made your day. I know you're about to go share that with all of your friends. I just shared a meme of it on my Twitter. You can find me there or Facebook at The Friddle. Hope you and your family have a fantastic day. And we'll see you back here tomorrow for our free Friday giveaway day. Don't miss it. <laughs>